In a world where repeated lies and misinformation become so prevalent among the population as ideology, belief, prejudice, and faith, that they become a material force in place of grounded theory, one plush bear and one human lady aim to weaponize criticism against the plague of post-truth. And your heart. It's Knackers and a Vatch. Right, you. You didn't email me. Simple address, Helen at badhostess.com. For a free thing, a free book, my free book, which has truly been remainded, not only in the bins of bookstores, but from your memory. I said, email me, tell me why you want my book, or just say, give me your book, I'll send you one. Absolutely not one entry. So that's it for competition. No more. I refuse. I will withhold. But this very minute here on Knackers, Knackers, Knackers and the Vag, 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 one bear, one lady and one guy underscore Rundle. Hello. Hey, how's it going, Helen? Guy Rundle is known to me. I just remembered... I met him very first across two microphones, and here we are again with microphones, although in somewhat less salubrious surrounds. And I imagine that there were a ta- there was a time where a certain class of media wanker, just you know, we we all met in ABC radio recording booths. It was a whole community of people that used to meet in radio booths, booths and, and green rooms. I think. Yeah, yeah. So it's, oh, it's, those. It's the green room. Uh, I remember a green room once for some talk show uh, I was working on, which included uh, a dominatrix and a conservative Catholic farmer who had taught himself Latin on his tractor. Uh, and uh, they were just they were arguing the toss on whatever this show was, and then they were back in the uh, back in the green room, and everybody's taking photos together suddenly, yeah. and uh, then uh, someone says, "Oh, um, someone says the farmer's daughter. Oh, uh, uh, where should we send these photos to?" And the dominatrix goes, "Oh, uh, Mistress Kitty's dungeon of torture, darling, her Sydney." And that's the green room sort of. Well, it was. I think you're talking about a time where people threw money into uh, television new- newspapers and other established creative media, and you know, a little bit trickled down to us. But trickle down economics. Not such a success as things turn out. You know that. I know that. Do you know who Guy Rundle is? You almost certainly do. One of my colleagues at Crikey. Uh, and I, I guess you first came to a, uh, a modest prominence as a young comedy writer many years ago. Your first gig was writing on, was it Fast Forward, the sketch show? No, I was never on Fast Forward. But I oh, I'm sorry. I was on Full Frontal, Full which frontal. was the sort of uh, yeah. the idiot cousin and country cousin of Fast Forward that had come to town after they shut Fast Forward down. So, yeah, so I started on on Full Frontal and, after and doing some. from there there was uh, a collaboration, which I would say is, is is potentially ongoing, with the very great Max Gillies. Yep, we did four stage shows together. And at the same time as I was doing that, I was, I was doing, you know, various obscure political things with Arena Magazine. So it was always a double sort of whammy. Arena Magazine is a magazine from uh, Melbourne, Australia. It's... Um, 
over time evolve. What was the uh, what was the date of establishment of Arena? Nineteen sixty three. Oh the my original. heavens! Oh yes, it's more oh, than so fifty it's, years old. Yes, it's it, uh, this year it celebrates its fifty fifth uh, birthday, uh, and mm. um, it's. Uh, a labour of ideas. Early retirement. So. Uh, a a labour of ideas over over many years. Uh, Guy co- continues to uh, contribute to that. And, um, oh, also occasional television producer. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so, so after um, shit-kicking around as a comedy writer, eventually they give you something to produce, they give you a segment to produce, and they give you a cable show to produce. So I did a bit of that. Get a Life, hmm. Shark Bay. Other things I've forgotten. I don't know. Repressed. I, okay, so uh, what you would call Guy, I think quite legitimately, um, is an intellectual. He is one of Australia's intellectuals, which might sound flattering to you. It, it, it certainly, I don't think, flatters Guy because ladies and gents and others think of the fucking competition. But you would you would you say that your work is now intellectual? That's your job. Oh, yeah, I'm a – how do I think of myself? I think of myself as a theorist, an activist, um, uh, and that's always been – I mean, that that is prior to the – In this way, you are much writing. like the great Hillary Clinton, of course. <laughs> you yeah. know, she, she – I don't know whether she is being literal or not, but I went to see Hillary Clinton um, in her, her – her, uh, one of her very few, very expensive Australian appearances, and she, when asked by – Julia Gillard, and both of these ladies were introduced by Annabelle Crabb um, following a moving song by a children's choir. Um, and, of course, in me, this brought on a spontaneous menopause. Um, it, oh, my fucking God, you wouldn't believe it. But um, I think that, you know, Julia asks her a question and, and she says, these days it says activist on my business card. And so I'm quite intrigued by the use of this word activist because when you and I were girls, Mm -hmm. uh, it meant a very particular thing and it was perhaps something that was, I mean, you know, it was uh, a a positive thing to say about oneself if one was a kind of a loony Mm. protester. But uh, activist was something that used to probably be, I I would say in Australia at least, sort of spat uh, like perhaps Mm. it has a different connotation in America where they, they, call themselves organisers and activists. But I don't know. I, I think that in recent years the use of the term has v- very much shifted to mean um, you have probably heard the phrase CEO activist, for example. Yes, that's right. I, I understand what you mean. It's become that sort of depoliticised um, make things happen sort of thing, whether that making mm-hmm. things happen is, is you know, privatising dialysis machines or um uh, you know achieving full communism it 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 it's become generic yeah i i well you see megan uh, the, the the lady formerly known as megan markle the duchess of sussex yeah describes herself as an activist yeah it's true um, it's... is described regularly as an activist yeah. there were many people fretting that the world of activism would lose megan yeah. markle i mean you know, there will be that... an, there will be another beautiful woman of color from the television to speak to the UN about things it already knows. Don't worry. But so have you I think the, the thing shit? is, I think the thing is, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, and it's difficult to describe what you do. I think the, the difference is between if you're a writer especially, whether you just write in a disembodied, disconnected way, uh, in commentary and that sort of thing, or whether you are writing towards a specific 
purpose. You you have a certain politics, you know, which in my case well, is you know socialism. What, uh, all right, so everybody does have some idea about how the world should be organised, certainly some idea about how the world is organised. Mm. And in this time where um, you have the right to an opinion, you know, often, you know, you feel the obligation to an opinion. But my point being, I agree, everybody comes yeah. to life, writing or anything um, with politics. Yeah. And, you know, my particular framework is not that different from your particular framework. And so my political framework. Okay, so, no, give me, because you're far more eloquent than I, and and perhaps he can give it to you too. No, no, I'm not. Yes, keep going. What do we mean by politics? Bigger than the parliamentary. What When we talk about politics, what do we mean? What are we referring to? How much time have we got in this hard drive? What? Well, this is the this is the question that that is changing as we speak. I mean, this is this is really, you know, initially, if you if you like, what what we're coming out of is a period that may have lasted hundreds of years, from the seventeenth century right into the twentieth century, where politics was a secular thing about um, uh, governance. And production; those were the two things I would guess. You know, what was the legitimate structure of authority, and who controlled who got what, when, how, as, as Harold Laswell put it. Um, and that arises obviously from the Dutch Revolution, the English Revolution of the 17th centuries, where some distinct activity that is not religious emerges out of religion. So the Dutch and English revolutions are religious conflicts initially. But as they progress uh, through the 1600s, they become something other than religious. And then you get the American Revolution, which puts religion very much in the back. You know, it's not about religion, and right, et cetera. I, I, okay. Uh, but we'll hang on. Thank you for – I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated, of yeah. course, um, by your rich knowledge of just about everything. Um, save for popular music, you've never been strong on that. Yeah. Um, a girl can't have everything. A oh. boy can't have everything. But the workers together. Before 1984, I'm pretty good on popular music. Can have, can, can have everything they want. Yeah. Um, all right, so politics um, has different connotations as well. And when you say well, uh, I'm political or I have a political yeah, framework, well, what do I mean? I don't just mean um, the you know the 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 rulers well, and, the rulers and the decisions that they make. So well, that's what me. I'm saying. That's what I'm talking about. Give me a 101 definition. Well, hang on, hang on. But there isn't. I mean, this is the problem because it's shifted very greatly within the past 20 or 25 years. Um, that that was you know the focus of what politics was. You know mm. what you did and everything around it, cultural decisions, art that sort of thing was a sort of penumbra which people had different views on and that sort of stuff. Uh, now it seems to me in the West or in the, you know, in, in countries of advanced capitalism or de-advancing capitalism or whatever, that for the moment or forever has reversed and people largely see governance and production as administrative decisions mm. um, off the one side and politics has become the politics of um, self and other shaping, yeah, like yeah. how are we to be shaped, how are the cultural processes to occur, what is the I, source of my Absolutely. Identity? I couldn't yeah. agree more and I'm, I'm thrilled that you've yeah. brought the thing up that I most love to talk about. 
but I was I was asking perhaps what you you mean um, by your political framework and and what politics can make. I mean it, it's used in many different contexts. So it's not just um, parliamentary decisions. It's not just um, uh, the uh, the close kinship between um, the, the the state and the bigger, yeah. the biggest employers and producers. Um, but it's things in the world. Um, it's, it's it's how do the structures of life come to be? Yeah, it's like it, the, yeah, and yeah. so a lot of the time. Um, so if I use the term political, depending on what context, if I use it to you, um, uh, and um, you know, it's sort of like it's it's um, a plea to sort of like ground this in um, some some reality. Like um, so, we've spoken before about you know, say a program just off the top of my head that I didn't like at all um, for political reasons. Um, in the sense that we were just talking about on the ABC was the um, show by, I mean, she's charming. I shouldn't be awful, but I am awful. As you know, Guy Rundle here on Knackers, Knackers, Knackers and the Vag, Vag, Vag. By the way, there's the bear. Thank if you, you um You shut me up with, yeah. with the bear. What um, was the show you didn't like? It was called uh, Back in Time for Dinner. It was a format. Oh, right, yeah, purchased English from, format. From the British um, yeah. thing and, you know, quite a sort of charming family and, yeah. they, they, and they were they were presented as a typical Australian family, yeah. um, economically they certainly weren't typical. Yeah. Um, they were maybe average, but uh, as we know, there is a large difference, particularly in a time of inequality between yeah. an average, which is a number in the middle, um, which hardly anyone is going to be. Yeah. And that, So I, what was your problem with it? Well, so it was very beautifully shot. Yep. Um, most money I've seen the ABC ever spend on set design Absolutely gorgeous. So, so what, this was hosted by Annabelle, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. And so, and so you know, it was Annabelle she's plus food. So, of course, well, yeah, I mean, of, of course, it. it's going to work. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, usually when our Australian Broadcasting um, uh, Corporation um, commissions some show, like, you know, so, and it's a period show, somebody's got like $5 to spend on eBay. Sure, gotcha. But, but not, this was not this one, mm, yeah. schmicko. Yeah. So, they redecorated these people, uh, this family's home yeah. um, for a Every decade from yep. the 1950s. Yeah. And so the conceit is that um, looking at the diet yep. um, of a family through Did they the, only go back to the 50s, did they? They didn't go further. Yes, they went to the beginning of the Keynesian, the Keynesian period, I guess. That's interesting because the English one went right back to the 20s, I think. So well, they started when people had no food. You know, I mean, I guess – yeah. It was a decision of scheduling or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe they just had enough budget. Yeah. Um, so it was very beautiful. And in the first one, we're in the 1950s and there's an icebox and not a refrigerator. Yep. Um, and, um, you know, these kids who are addicted to their smartphones, look at yeah. how they survive. And, you know, so it's fun. Yeah. But it makes very specific claims about what the average experience was. Um, and Like so, what claims in well, the 50s? Uh, that so this um, family happened to be an Italian family, yeah. And so he, the husband was given the role of being fresh off the boat, a yeah. new Australian, as uh, people once yeah, yeah. called new arrivals. And so he would have not had any English, um, and he certainly wouldn't have been working in a white collar job. Mm -hmm. And I became quite obsessed with this. So, so this, this gentleman was a white collar worker. Mm -hmm. uh, he wore fine suits. Um, he demanded his dinner in silence. Uh, and um, so this was that. But, I mean, actually most workers in Australia at that time were manual labourers. Mm -hmm. I believe that because I looked it up because, oh, God, I get so angry sometimes I look up facts. Yeah. 
and the facts of um and i i called a friend of mine from the anu who um it, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. for a long time a professor yeah. of labor and he said well five percent of australians something like this were white collar workers i would not stake my life on it but almost none of these were italian yeah yeah gotcha. um and so 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 that's the first mistake yeah. and so the only and then through the decades you know the idea is one of progress and that yeah. everything got better and better. Yeah, yeah. And the reason that everything got better and better, uh, and so so let's not forget that this television program which purported to show a regular average family, yeah. they, they were not regular average sure, Australians. Sure, got, got that. But what uh, what was the motive force of things getting better Women and better? feeling free. Right. Gotcha. Like yeah. finally women have you know, uh, become the full flower of their Melanie Griffith working yeah, yeah. girl finance industry. Like, I got a head for business and a bod for sin. And, th- and so this was really the only thing yeah. they talked about. They mentioned that some Italians may have experienced racism, but this is quickly, you know, just tossed under the carpet and it's just like, but soon Australia realised that they had good food. Yeah. And it's just like, that, is, you know, people were the... beaten. For God's sake, and it was just, it was it was not, and not everybody had a washing machine, and it was just, I mean, apart from the mise-en-scene, I mean, the thing that upset me so much about it was that, I mean, I'm fairly familiar with my family's history. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely ordinary people. Yeah, yeah. In every way. They didn't. They, 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 their life was so much harder for them. And then again, you know, not every sassy lady throughout the ages grew up to be uh, a millionaire entrepreneur, but this is what we see, and it's like that to me is an explicitly political yeah. position. I'm sorry, he lifted up the bear. Well, that's right, but it's also yeah, and it's the the basic idea of that is that the past is just the present lacking, and and you yes, know, yes. and this is the, and that is with with that show and the the way they did it in Britain too. There is that idea that, that everybody's just sitting around waiting for someone to invent television or, you know, that was the old version of it or everybody's what are we, what are sitting around a, waiting for the family yeah. to be reconstructed so, we, we so that it's a two-income family. What I think is interesting with those shows is that they can't make a distinction between content and form. So when they look back at a 40s family or a 50s family where it's one wage and one full-time housewife, um, and dinner has a certain different structure and, and you know, there's more of a separation between meals and there's no snacking and, and there's more formality and that sort of thing. They can't actually – what they can't bring forth um, is what might have been lost, which there might have been a conviviality oh, my heaven's sake, lost yes. and, and a sense of connection um, and community that has been lost. Now, we could have kept that, one would imagine, if the – entry of women into the workforce had been paralleled with a reduction in the working the hours of the working day so that um so that we didn't have you well, know. yeah and that's um some and so that's a so that's a deepest you know that's a sense, yeah, the sense of so, politics I'm interested and in. And so in. I know we're blathering but I'm sure you're fascinated and, and you're still here on knackers 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 in the vag vag vag. This is a really interesting thing to consider in history. And if you weren't alive at the time, which you probably weren't because apparently everybody is younger than me now, um, you probably don't have a memory of women going to work for the first time. I've got a very sort of dim memory, like mothers rather, mm. going to work for the first time. Um, middle class mothers, working class mothers were always working. But when we grew out this middle class for 
mostly white Australians, um, it, uh, after the middle century by, you know, shifting certain economic gears, taxing big companies higher. We've spoken about this before. It's, it's you know, it's like the New Deal in the USA or, or Keynesian ideas. You've heard all, all about this. So eventually what happens is the workers have a lot of rights under this. You know, the workers have power. And so the workers seize that power. And if you have full employment, you can just go from one job to the next, right? And so you go from, so the workers are in the most, uh, you know, in relative to history, they are in pole position. So at the end of the 1960s, unions are really strong in Australia and other places in the West. And what happens is this thing called stagflation. Now there's a whole lot, and Guy will probably correct me, but there's a whole lot of stuff that happens around this period in the West. On one hand, you have the emergence of the new left. You have um, all of these events in 1968, um, which are amazing. But also simultaneously going on um, in Western economies is this thing called um, uh, stagflation. So you get inflation going on. Life becomes very expensive for ordinary people. Um, And then you get um, high unemployment Mm. and no growth whatsoever. Um, and so this is interesting and it's interesting to think about cycles of capitalism and you go, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, social democracy, Keynesianism, it was really good. It was good for some people in the world for a certain amount of time. And then they shift the gears. We shift the gears to the contemporary era called neoliberalism. What happens? Women go to work. Now I am going to make a point. Sorry, I, the point is that I remember my mum going to work. She didn't want to, and she didn't like it, and it gave her a nervy. Um, it was not something that she wanted to do. She wanted to care for her children. Uh-huh. And I'm not saying choose your choice, be a woman, bloody blah. Work sucks for most people in the world. Work is vile for most people in the world. And she didn't enjoy it. And in my suburban Canberra, most mothers didn't enjoy it. And so it was not a great liberation it wasn't felt as a great liberation for most women. They were very glad um, that their sisters, their feminist sisters had fought for equal pay, but they didn't. Who wants to go to work, you know? Well, that's right. I mean, that's an interesting thing, I think, in terms of the periodizing the 20th century. One of the things I've been thinking about is the way in which um, it's more interesting to look at the, the period from the 1940s through to the late 70s as one period Rather than the rather than the fifties being this this sort of you know beachhead and then the sixties explode. So uh, so you will look at things in terms of economic periods and economic cycles. Well, it's the economic cultural historical periods. I mean, what happened was I think that the forties, World War Two, reorganized society in a way that that we really haven't fully um, uh, uh, conceptualized as as a real disruptive breach, you know. Oh, my God. I mean, World War II really, it changed the entire yeah. world. But the, but what I'm talking about is that the way in which the economy and uh, knowledge production, everything like that, was drawn into the state and the domestic sort of processes, you know, um, cultural engineering, if you like, engineering, mm-hmm. you know, once you – when you, you're mobilising a whole population for total war, you have to mobilise women as well, obviously, and that's the Rosie the River sort of thing. And then the story we've told for a long time is that, you know, 
women are all pushed back into the, the house and that sort of thing for the 50s and, and then it explodes again in the 60s. It seems to me it might be that the 50s was partly, you know, yes, a, a managed counter-revolution against the, the liberation of the 40s and the uh, the pulling apart of old social relationships in that way. But it was also that a lot of women wanted to go back to the house and start families and as far as I'm told, you know, as soon as the troops came back in 1945, everybody, you know, fucked solid for five years and, and it was just this sort of, you know, post post-war, post-death sort of celebration of life. So if you see that, if you then see that the 60s as the, you know, the bursting back of these these energies that were created in the 40s held down in the 50s, and then you have the 60s and 70s, and the 70s, you know, in Australia, the 70s is the 60s, but elsewhere, the 70s is is the lapse point where these various revolutions in different sort of processes have failed, the deeper structural shifts underlying them fail, the contradictions of of capitalism start to pull Keynesianism apart, um, you know, and there's various discrediting of things like the Chinese Revolution yeah. and that I mean, sort of you, thing. You know, and you get a comprehensive collapse in the late 70s. I so. mean, you know, this is the thing, and whatever you decide your, your, your view or hopes for the future are, um, I think, you know, you and I will never agree unless you acknowledge that capitalism has cycles. In my view, all good economists, all economists worth listening to will say, yes, capitalism has cycles and one cycle wears itself out and if you want to save capitalism, if you want that to continue to be the system, you have to re-engineer it. And this is the interesting thing because we're now kind of like at the 10-year anniversary of the global financial crisis, mm. right, and there's been no new thing happened like before. Yeah. So in 1929 we get um, the Great Depression and, you know, people say, well, what was called laissez-faire economics um, and laissez-faire is always planned. Um, uh, laissez-faire um, economics doesn't work. Um, so, you know, we're going to – and, uh, you know, Roosevelt started the social welfare program and, you know, unemployment benefits and, and, and built infrastructure, giving people jobs yeah. and similar things, all sorts of things happened here in Australia, blah, blah, blah. And so that worked for a while. And then, you know, stagflation, um, uh, petrodollars, um, gold shock, Vietnam, all these things happened. Um, a lot of the agreements from that period were, were overturned um, uh, and uh, we're in the neoliberal period. Okay, so you, some people will argue that the neoliberal period has been very good and has lift billion, lifted billions, yeah. if not bajillions, out of poverty, although people are starting to say that less. But, okay, well, it's no longer working. And but it's also a question of whether there's a level below the, the level of the capitalist market that is transforming the structures within it. I mean, I think that, that would be... Um, well, how, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, I think that that's, I mean, that's one difference between, you know, a Marxist approach and a, a pluralist, if you like. Like approach. a heterodox economic approach. So no, 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 it's, it's not just economics. What we're arguing is that, that you know, economics is not the ground um, of social life. So um, if we're looking at the construction of subjectivity and the constructions of networks of self uh, and other and culture, then one of the things you're obviously getting as you go from the 40s through to the 70s um, is is a form of self 
creation that is far more based yeah, sure, on. Yeah, sure, but I'm not. Oh, well, saying... hang on, let me finish it. So for the for the, is a form of self creation that's far more based on on the intersections of new media, um, a more abstract sort of society and that sort of thing. And that in turn creates new forms of value and also removes certain possibilities of solidarity. So, so one of the reasons why you suddenly get this collapse in the 70s um, of, of a political left that might be able to offer an alternative um, might have less to do with the economy and might have more to do with the socio-cultural structures underneath it. Uh, and that that might be the crunch point whereby we enter the neoliberal period. So, you know, if you've read my book, which clearly you haven't, Guy is talking about the interweaving, um, the the way that what we might call the base and the superstructure talk to each other. Um, and well, don't call the I don't believe in base and superstructure. Well, I mean, Marx didn't use those words much anyway. Yeah, but actually. I'm not a Marxist, so. I don't yeah. care. I am. Yeah, I know, but, but this is what we're talking about. My argument is. I know. So you're you're positing that um, that there may be cultural things that um well it's cultural once you get the media once you get a different form of for social formation other than predominantly work neighborhood and other sorts of things then then what comes in the more formation by media and other more abstract forces and the rise of a certain type of grassroots individualism you might say is that certain possibilities of organization fall away certain possibilities of yeah. solidarity and that that in itself is and one of the arguments would be that the the left failed in the 70s because it hadn't theorized this sufficiently uh what was going on so it was still looking for a unified working class uh when there wasn't one when the very structures that make class possible yeah. uh had fallen away well in the 1960s there was you know there was a lot of questioning um you know i believe you know Marcusa comes up with this, who's a bestseller in the 1960s, by mm. the way. Like, uh, so his book, um, what One Dimensional Man, One Dimensional Man, yeah, is um, I think it makes the cover of Time magazine, probably the yeah. most famous sociologist ever in history. In Again, his time, yeah, yeah but yeah. I mean, probably the most famous. You know, he was a superstar sociologist there for yeah. a while, and you know, he says that it will be um, people with aberrant sexualities that lead the revolution. And well, then there's all these different people saying, Not just people with aberrant sexualities, but he's he's talking about what we would talk about these days, which okay, is I was just novel, using a, yeah, I was yeah, using a way of example. But his, right? most, but his most important category just don't was, be picky. was- Yeah, no, no, but it was black people. So his most important category yeah. was race. So I do think that's important, you know. So. Yes, it is. I've just, I've just done some erasure and thank you very much yeah. for pointing it out. But, you know, there were- People saying, yeah. well, it will be this and and and, and it will be that. And yeah. I mean, there was all sorts of strange things um, that happened. Like, you know, 1968, like that was the Soviet Union sold the left right out, you know. Um, so there was all sorts of reasons. What do you mean with Czechoslovakia? Well, by basically negotiating for the French uh, workers, 15 million of them, not to be on strike anymore and to make a deal with de Gaulle. And right. so, you know, the workers who had just sort of had this spontaneous kind of tremor, intifada, and just all agree to like not work and, and shut the country down, they're basically told by the commies, no, you, you can't, and they superseded. Well, it's, I think I, yeah, it's a, it, when you look, trying to disinter what actually happened in those weeks and months, um, 
is is an interesting question. I yeah, you're probably right, but I don't think it's coming from the USSR. The PCF is doing a lot of it, um, and uh, those were tricky questions about when to jump and when not to jump and that sort of thing. But there was a yeah, but there is it is the crucial reason why sixty eight falls apart. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, so we can always say that the uh, the left were not working hard enough, and that the left haven't thought enough, um, and the, the, the you know the, the the left are being lazy. And I'm prepared to entertain. Yeah. Your- well, it's not just the left being lazy; it's, it's just being having the wrong analysis. I mean, mm. if the left is about theory above all, and that theory, the prop, the right theory will get you the right praxis, and the right praxis will defeat the left is about theory above all really yeah well the left yeah exactly well the yeah. le- i mean every well you could say equally everything is about having a framework but i mean a very important part of leftism is the the the, the mass intelligence that arises well a mass intelligence is always theoretical i mean that's what a praxis is what i'm saying is my argument would be prior to the you know um we're talking about the left, a capital L left. We're not talking about, you know, uprisings or the workers or that sort of thing. We're talking about a distinct formation of the left. And it would seem to me that the left is always about theorising the world. It's about trying to abstract general principles that will allow you to intervene in the world in a certain fashion to achieve the sort of world you want. Um, and that's the, one of the great differences, I guess, is that the right um, – is or was for a long time improvisatory and more connected to the the real exercise of power. Um, so so there was less need for theory until they get into trouble. Yeah. And so let's say for the sake of brevity, and many people have said this, but you know, it seems that around this time that the guy's talking about this sort of beginning of this new economic and or cultural era which begins in Australia in, in, in about the, you know, let's say the mid-70s, what happened is that the left sort of felt that it had the culture and it won the cultural argument and, you know, the right just took care of the economy. So this is, you know, this is how it's, gen- you know, this is how the, the cultural turn is, is usually understood, right? So, so in the 1970s, the, the left, the big L left, like people like us who sit at dinner tables and go, um, so this, just just to be really short about it, like there was around about the mid-70s an interest, a real interest in economics started to fall away even from. Yeah, I think that's fair actually because I'm thinking of a Megan Morris essay where she writes about, you know, that when the dismissal happened, uh, you know, the dismissal slash the coup happened that that all sorts of people, you know, that she was involved with, you know, formed these groups, these radical groups to, you know, and that for for a number of them, this marked their last involvement in organisational politics of that political economic left yeah. thought because they all fell apart within weeks and months and that, that that period did form a real turn amongst a lot of those people, yeah. And I, that- I saw a picture of the dismissal the other day because I was actually looking because I was a little girl in Canberra then, my mother took me. Mm-hmm. Uh, she can't remember whether it was on the 11th or the 12th. So I was mm-hmm. looking at pictures of both events just to see if I could see us. And I saw the picture on, um, after the day of the dismissal, uh, November the 12th. Mm-hmm. And there's a picture of Bob Hawke from mm-hmm. then the, the, uh, general secretary of the ACTU, the mm-hmm. Australian, um, council of, of, of trade unions. And he gives a speech and says, look up what the speech was. And he told those assembled. And people had come just spontaneously from all around the country 
uh, when they heard the news about golf, no one could believe it. You know, my mm. my, my parents were, you know, silent. They they tell me for an hour when when it happened. People just couldn't deal with this crisis. It was you know the things yeah. that were falling apart. And Bob Hawke tells everybody, "Don't go on strike." Yeah. Don't go on strike. Yeah. Instead, give a day's wages to the Labor Party and get us re-elected. Yeah, yeah. And that was the fucking plan. And that, and this this guy is supposed to be, you know, they say unions have got worse. Well, I mean, that was one clear moment many years ago that our unions had already sold us out. Well, that was the clearest. That was the strategy of the whole. Like know. that. Like how could how could he do that? How can you tell workers not to strike if they want to strike. Well, it was the integrated strategy. I'm not defending it, but, you know, um, Whitlam could have told Kerr to um, go screw himself and we would have had a, you know, a situation of political division where there was no government. So they were very, you know, sort of keen on this idea that they would win. They thought they would win it easily. They thought they would win the election easily if they could keep things in line and show that they were the legitimate government. And Uh, you were only a little boy then. And yes. I was only a little boy then. Yeah. Uh, but I am told by my parents and others that it was, you know, some people had the sensation in Australia of being like in a lolly shop. Yeah. And you know, all, there was a uh, minister for multiculturalism. And when I say colourful, I don't, you know, mean um, what people usually mean, which is criminal identity. Well. <laughs> but but genuinely, uh, genuinely colourful in his ties, a chap called um, Al Grasby. And for, you know, whatever you want to say about the now late um, minister, he, that really represented something in Australia. We are not just, um, you know, a white country. And Well, it, and it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just the, co- I mean, the Whitlam government was pretty sort of haphazard, but... Um, you know, for example, it's it, there was an attempt to try and you know use petrodollars to buy all the resources, so that you know the mineral resources, so the state would own the entire mineral mm. resources of Australia, Might buy, be nice. buy up all the leases, so the money would have gone to us rather than Gina Reinhart, and we'd be like Norway with a trillion dollar. How does future. Gina Reinhart? What does she do? She clips some tickets, does she? How does she get so well off? Yeah, well, that's Thousands. right. You know, you inherit a bunch of mining leases, and you use those to capitalise more. It's very interesting that, you know, the mining, well, what's even more interesting, you know, the mining stuff was all staked out in 1944 when the uh, Americans did a series of flyovers of Australia using very sophisticated How do you know this? This is interesting. Oh, yeah, this is very, even more interesting. Uh, The the very sophisticated, you know, um, uh, geological imaging, you know, for the time sort of thing, so they could tell where where all the... uh, uh, minerals were. Now, Lang Hancock, Gina Reinhardt's father, got rich, he said, because he flew over part of the Pilbara one day and he looked at the uh, he looked at the earth and it was all blood red and he realised that that must be iron. So he bought the leases for a song and, and you know, as it goes, then he got a $30,000 royalty from from every truckload of iron that, that hit the ports. Now, you know, the question would be, where did he get the information from? Did he really fly over? One of the even more interesting things is that the uh, intel- Australian intelligence officer who was a liaison with the Americans doing these mining flyovers was a chap named John Kerr. So John Kerr then becomes the Governor General decades later. So, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all, um, this would take an entirely other podcast, but the, um, 
this is all interconnected in the sense that uh, that Kerr then became a you know a very militant anti-communist and involved with the Congress of Cultural Freedom, the the you know CIA front in Australia, and that sort of thing. And eventually becomes Governor General. Everybody tells Whitlam not to not to appoint him. Hawke says, "Don't appoint him. He's you know." He's a bastard. Uh, he's not one of us. That sort of thing. So, and then he does, and then he sacks him. So, you're listening to Knackers and the Badge. Our guest, your guest, is Guy Rundle. We are apparently flitting across the decades like nobody's business. Much to say, so little time to say it. Guy Rundle has agreed to be here. He will not ever agree to disagree. Um, but <laughs> perhaps you would agree to maybe focus uh the we haven't actually had a chat for weeks have we no there's there's many things to talk about yeah yeah go um but make make a a selection but before you know we start having um uh, some sort of talk about guys apparent total rejection of historical materialism let's just focus on a little thing (laughs) and i'm going to make that the ketogenic diet. Now, I don't want your opinion on it in medical terms because you are not a doctor yep. of medicine. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know the physiology of the the liver. I don't even know if physiology is a term you should apply to the study of the liver. Probably yeah. not. I tried to understand yeah, how the liver worked one day to disprove the things that, that uh, Paleo Pete Evans was saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. That liver is complicated. Yeah. Really complicated. The miracle of the body is it's more complicated. Every organ is more complicated than anything that technology can come up with. Oh, my goodness gracious. So so I don't really want to talk with you about whether the ketogenic diet works or not. Um, You know how it was invented, right? Which, uh, well, there were various inventions. Well, for epilepsy. Right. Pediatric um, epilepsy. Um, so it's this low carb, fairly low protein and high fat. High fat. Well, there was a diet in the in World War Two called the Keckwick diet, which was which was the pre- precursor of paleo uh, of keto rather, um, and that was high fat, and that was partly designed because they're experimenting with with different compositions of mm. war rations. Oh. Well, there's nine grams, there's nine calories per gram in fat and four grams in carbs of protein. Mm. So the more great you want to pack in as many calories as possible. And so they did all these experiments with conscientious objectors who they would put them on a rock uh, island up on the coast of Scotland, with nothing else, uh, you know, no food, no food sources, and they'd give them different foods to eat, different tasks to do. Um, and they found that on a very high fat, on a 100% fat diet, after eight days, everybody stops eating, you know, and that's the thing. And people actually lose weight no matter mm-hmm. what they're doing. So, yeah, that was the Keckwick and then it sort of disappeared for a while and then it seems yes. to come well, back. I mean, and the, the the promise with the ketogenic diet is you can burn fat forever, apparently, yeah. anyhow. So the reason that I find it interesting, um, this this diet in particular, I mean, all, you know, diet, uh, there's so, so many diets. Yeah. And the diet industry um, sort of begins in the 1950s, sort of post-World World War, and it was for women. You know, they would go on reducing diets. There were a few health nut men, but it was uncommon for men to at least openly try to reduce their figures. And the thing that's happened since, um, since Atkins, and Atkins became popular in about 1997, I think, 
Uh, or maybe a little no, earlier. No, no. I mean, the Atkins came and went and then came back. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But I it mean, was it, in the it, 70s and then it went away. But in terms of it being a really big popular diet, like the diet of the time. So it's um, it's, it's around about the mid 90s, turn of the century, that well, Atkins becomes a thing. The second time around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, this is much bigger because yeah. the, the 70s was sort of more, um, you know, that was the beginning of the low fat age. Yeah, and, I guess so. There was a lot of and diet. You know, and you get yeah. a Pritikin diet was another big one, which was yeah. sort of low fat, high veg. Fiber, yeah. A lot of fiber. There was some very popular diets which probably didn't do much. My favorite being um, one that Vogue printed in about 1972 called the Champagne Diet. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, you were. What was the Israeli army diet, that one? I uh, was that in grapefruits or Palestine? Yeah, something like, or? Something like that. That's, <laughs> so. That's not funny, but so, it is. Yeah. Um, um, it's, it's sad yet funny yeah, because yeah. it's true. Um, cabbage soup diet. Yeah. And, you know, diets where you would just eat one food for two yeah, days yeah, straight. Yeah. and you know, They're all uh, calorie reduction diets, um, you know, basically. And then there's always kind of like strange diets creeping under, like the master cleanse. Diet, which is you have um, water. Oh, that's the, the um, cayenne pepper. And, yes, and yes, maple yes, maple syrup. syrup. Yeah, yeah. And the guy that I, I think that the guy that um, devised this is quite interesting slash um, peculiar. Yeah. And so, as you know, I mean, plenty of diets, but I'm talking about the sort of really big diets that most people do. So, you know, a lot of women go to Weight Watchers yeah. initially. So, women have this sort of shared experience where they have their Oprah aha moments mm. and. So, uh, you know, and even kind of like because I have lived in my share of uh, lesbian, feminist, separatist households in my in my youth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, even in that community, and I'm sure it's not the same now, but the in that community there was this particular attitude to the losing of the weight by the ladies, which was not that dissimilar from the Weight Watchers approach or the Jenny Craig approach or whatever. And it was very much I um, have issues and, and um, I – eat my emotions and um, I need to release myself and we're all disordered in our eating and women's bodies have been socially marked by misogyny and we need to throw these shackles off and then we'll be thin or our ideal weight or whatever. So this is a very kind of common feminist view that it's, you know, there's this sort of therapeutic approach and if Mm. if you cry it out and you talk to other women that you too will lose weight or lose fat rather. And so anyway, then we get Atkins and then men start um, mm. to m- more openly diet. Yeah. Um, and then with so-called paleo diet, um, yeah. sometimes called the caveman diet, men do it as well. And now with ketogenic, which I understand has really taken off um, as a very manly diet. And, and this is not to say, of course, that you know all men are like this or all women are like this. It's just in terms of mass market um, these books are selling to men and, and these these mm. now tailored products are selling to men. And and it seems to me to sort of like peak. And it, I just want to sort of talk about not the crazy differences that separate us as men and women, but it, it, it is interesting to consider how they've been marketed differently. But my idea is that the impulse, okay, so there's the impulse to uh, lose fat, yeah. right? But there's another driver for it. And it's the same in men and women, but it expresses itself differently. I just have you considered this sort of you know men's kind of new um, yeah. Well, I think it came vanity and well, it's I mean it's a mixture of vanity and control, and that sort of thing. I think I think what happened. I remember once going down Chapel Street in the might have been the late eighties, and um, they were pulling down a building, and they'd revealed 
um, an old hoarding for um, uh, adver- advertisements. And uh, one of the billboard advertisements was for the Golden Bowl Health Club. Remember the Golden Bowl, which was when Melbourne had like two gyms, you know, the Golden Bowl was one of them. I think it was in Camberwell. And the people, you know, who were who were clearly meant to represent the fit people from the Golden Bowl were what you would then by, by the 90s describe as, as you know, fat. They have love handles and... Or da- a, dad bodies, I believe they say now if they're gentlemen. Well, or 70s bodies. You know, they were young and youthful and still had the slenderness of shape, but they just had these bits of flab and they weren't da-da-da-da-da. Uh, and, the women, you know, the women were fat. They looked fat. They looked great, you know, but by our standards they looked fat. And I think... Um, I think part of what happened was, you know, is related to all the things we're talking about, this great apocryphal shift, you know, to a form of individualism and to a form of boundedness mm-hmm. and to a form of and that sort of thing. And so the whole idea of the body changes in both men and women, um, as you say, you know, women and dieting is the, the through line, but men come in when it's about, it's a sort of circle of control of the body, you know, and that's when you see men's health magazine, yeah. you know, come on the um Yeah, I mean, it's actually stands. about men, men's health now. Like I, you know, you, 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 there was a time that, you know, you got these magazines to look at nice male bodies. Like it was um mm. sort of a coded gay mag, yeah. basically, or, or that and maybe not men's or health. Or it was a self-fashioning mag or, or men's magazines weren't, you know, men's magazines had women in them or men's magazines had, you know, stuff in them. But um yeah, but Men's Health, and what's interesting about Men's Health magazine is it's the male equivalent of Cosmopolitan magazine in that the same article is recycled a thousand times. It's how to get great abs, how to get great guns, you know, that sort of thing. Lose. It's all the same articles, 15 articles, and they get recycled endlessly, but it still sells, you know, and what it's selling, it seems, is an idea of, you know, there's, there's the uh, – the whole 60s, 70s ethos falls away, a hyper-individualism comes in. But with it comes a very specific form of body image, which mm. is the bounded hard body. And I think the 60s and 70s was about, you know, the fluid sort of body, the flowing, hippie sort of et cetera, et cetera body, the longer hair, you know, everybody's wearing longer hair. And at that point people really – so people don't care about a bit of flab well, I mean, yeah, there that, wasn't, that sort of you know, there wasn't a widely circulated mass ideal, and to see, yeah. a, you know, a naked body was once not a very common thing, and yeah. and you know, there is a reason that you know the 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 busty California blonde, white blonde, is a thing, and yeah. and, and that reason is that was Hugh Hefner's taste, yeah, yeah, and I mean, he loved blondes, and that was there was a period that Playboy actually, because um, I never read it for the articles. Actually, I'm joking. The articles used to be really bad yeah. or something. But if you look at 70s Playboys, they were genuinely very d- diverse. Um, yeah. All sorts of uh, all sorts of ladies, all sorts of shades. I mean, yeah. they were they were all kind of like well, they were all the way through. I, I, um, but uh, the taste for blondes and big tits goes goes pretty deep in men. I I, I think it's well, pretty. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, Gucci only um, obviously like brunettes, and I mean, some men have yeah. got a thing for redheads in short skirts. You yeah. know, um, but I mean, so not all men. Hashtag not all men um, love the particular. I mean, you know, like people uh, have got different tastes. You know, you've had sex with people before, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, I mean, people have all sorts of things that arouse them. Yeah, but it's, um, it's the cultural mark, isn't it? Yeah, but and, and I mean, I, you know, no doubt. I mean, 
we could say if if you want that so let's say that those sort of like Scandinavian Californian yeah. dream princes princesses are objectively beautiful. Okay, so let's just say that because they super are. But I mean, you know, it is a beautiful kind, one beautiful yeah. kind of human. But this was imposed and you know refined and interesting uh, to me is that the women become more garish in the later issues of of Playboy, which is testament to the control that Hugh always had on the, on these women because they were wearing that kind of makeup, I feel sure, because his eyesight was failing. <laughs> Just like the women on Fox News. They uh, all look like, you know, and blonde robots from you, the future. I'd be interviewed or talk to yeah. any woman who's ever been in the Fox News makeup chair and they yeah. And they have conversations with them. A couple yeah. of ladies have written articles about it. They're like, why are you putting this much makeup on me? Yeah, yeah. Because our viewers are old and they can't see very well. Oh, is that what it is? I yes. always thought it was a contrast. You know, the the guys on, on Fox News either look like the football hero or complete schlubs. And by looking like complete schlubs, you know, that, that signifies that they are no, experts I, uh, or, or so I believe, leaders. And the women always look like, uh, you know, blow-up dolls or robots or hookers. Well, no, know. I mean, when you talk to the – and some people have. Um, there's a few articles floating around the internet. They're fascinating. Yeah. So when they're actually talking to the wardrobe and makeup people at Fox News, they actually say – Oh, no, we're doing this so our old viewers can see. Yeah, right. Which yeah, is yeah. fabulous, right? That is hilarious because they do, you know, it just comes at you. But I, I think so, so what anyway. I'm interested with in the male body. Back to the male body. The male body is, is you know, Wilhelm Reich, the mid-century, you know, radical liberatory psychoanalyst, you know, argued that the then worship of the male, of the hard body, you know, the Charles Atlas stuff and that sort of thing, which had not yet started, you know, it was related to to fascism. You know, the fascist hard body is a refusal of the natural body. So the fascist oh, hard, yes, absolutely. I hard mean, you, body you is see someone the, who wants this, to be a machine. You see this in Australia too. Yeah. Like, I mean, I believe um, Max Dupayne, um, who took a lot of pictures and did a lot of yeah. adver- advertisements of this kind of like perfect yeah. man. Yeah. Um, and some nudes too, a perfect man. I mean, he was a eugenicist or at least, and his father owned – some old-fashioned yeah. gyms where they were sort of basically teaching white people to be real hard body. Yeah, I mean that was that's you know that that anxiety about the body um, in Australia. There's a book by Warwick Anderson called "Cultivating Whiteness" or something like that. It's the basic anxiety about um, how you you know English Europeans will actually live in a tropical country or a country with huge amounts of tropics. And if we can't colonise the tropics, if we can't live in the tropics, the Asians will come and take it. So it's all. But, you know, in, in the Nazi thing, you know, Reich is arguing that this is a product of anxiety, of the humiliation of Versailles and loss of, of World War One and that sort of thing. And that gets transmuted into the body. So the body becomes a hard body and a defence against all incursion. Uh, so I find that very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. That comes in back in now for both sexes, you know. The, the well, you're not the first person to draw um, a comparison between the 1930s and, and the present. And, yeah. And, 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 and the it, economic conditions are very similar. The aesthetics are very similar. The obsessions are very similar. Yeah. You know, it, it was a time of great sentimentality as well as that of great hatred. Yeah, but um, I'm, I'm more looking. I mean, I'm seeing that as a sort of entry. Once again, you know, my interest is is far more in these basic building blocks. So, so what is the sense of the self and the body? If the body is, if the idea of of 
if the idea of the 60s and 70s is we're all in it together and, and you know, we're a bit connected and that sort of thing, the body can be much more fluid and forgiving and the ideal of beauty becomes these expansive, you know, in the women it's, you know, it's Marilyn and Sophia Loren and that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's sort of, or, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, and for the men it, it can be a bit, you know, loose and, and uh, that sort of thing. As, as we've come into this period of, you know, competition, control, da 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 da, that sort of thing of neoliberalism. We have this, yeah. It's a transfer between levels. Um, yes, that, you're that quite right. I mean, you know, my body needs to be secure, and that just just to finish this, that seems to me to be then the precursor to to what rules our era, which is the idea of safety. Um, you know, the, the hard body is the safe body. I am. Uh, I am protected from impingement by the outside world yeah. in the same way as when people, you know, want to put trigger warnings on things or want to be, you know, re- you know, they don't even want to see offensive content or that sort of thing. It's it's not they don't want to, yeah. so they disagree with it. They want to not even have it in their consciousness. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree when you say, so, of course, you know, a diet is ostensibly about health. The goal may be no. weight loss. It certainly is with ketogenic diet. And so it's about imposing discipline on mm. the self. And for me, for whatever reason, I have never been on a diet. I, I mean, the reason probably is that my mother was perpetually on a diet in the 1970s and she was always miserable, so mm. good aversion therapy. But because of that, I've always sort of asked girls, like I was the only, you know, were very few girls at school who didn't count calories. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so women would, uh, young women, girls in my school would, you know, acquire this extraordinary amount of information, like yeah. really like, you know, great mem- human calorie counters. Yeah. And, you know, the rules that they might be, uh, might remember about when to eat and how to food combine might be based in total bullshit, but they yeah. still knew them. Girls yeah. who would pay no attention in maths class at all. Well, that's right. Isn't that, like, it's like, like, it's like Paolo Freire's point about education. You can teach someone a language, you know, in a two weeks if you teach them what they want to say. You can teach someone yeah, yeah. year 12 mathematics yeah. if you teach them about uh, calorie composition. You know, I, I, I believe I, the old Chomsky um, yeah. felt the same way about baseball. It was like, you know, why won't you listen to me and understand politics when you know everything that there is yeah, to know yeah, about yeah. baseball? It's like, yes, and, you know, my mother didn't learn how to use a computer until she realised that Facebook had uh, pictures of um you know, now gone to seed old schoolmates. You know, yeah, it was like yeah. Facebook got her on the internet. So, yeah, and if you want to. So, yeah, you know, um, absolutely. But I, I mean, I also believe that it was a form of control for women. I mean, yeah, so, absolutely. so you, you, you may think of women as lovely and soft and somehow more yielding and open. You're clearly not a woman. <laughs> oh, I don't know any. Women are just as <laughs> sensitive to the conditions of, of power or politics, or whatever you want to call it, as any other beast. And for me, most of the women I know have been on diets because they that is an that that is a form of control that they can exercise. Yeah, I don't doubt that at all. Um, but, and especially if you don't have children, I mean, you have control. It was, you know, but I this mean, is the this is what I'm arguing. The transition is you know, you know women agree. have women. Yeah, um, the the diet. As far as I understand it, you know, there is dieting before the Second World War and it's things called banting and that sort of thing because the the late Victorian Edwardian diet had, had for various theories, had risen to like 
you've got to have 4,000 calories a day, that sort of thing. So people got hugely fat on these, these, you know, people who could afford it got hugely fat on these seven or eight course meals. If you look at the menus, you know, this was a, you know, this was a theory in in part based on how many calories, you know, a canal digger needed then applied to people who never did canals. So, so there was this, and so there were the various, but as you, as you say, it was never a, you know, it was never a huge obsession through until the second. Well, we World just, War. I mean, we didn't have and nobody mass, had enough food, we, we, and and also we just didn't have the sort of mass um, marketing industries that we that yeah. we do in the present. Ooh, we're getting them, but but yes, of course. But I mean, you know, the corporations weren't so vast, and um, the 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 reach, the ineluctability of electronic media, not so much. I mean, you just couldn't convince large numbers of people to do the same thing, whatever it was. Oh, I don't know about that. Um, I think radio. People were coerced in other ways. No, I think radio and those sorts of things, that's when you get the beginning. Okay, there just wasn't as much shit to buy. Yeah, that's that's true. There's a lot going on, but yeah, but there's also. I mean, and, and in that period we only sort of just have people like Edward Bernays. Yeah. Who's a very interesting figure when you want to consider feminism who was actually, was he like a nephew of Freud's? Yeah, he was Freud's nephew, yeah. And, I mean, he did apply some like Freudian theory to um, the sale of goods. public relations. You know, he just reversed Freud. Uh, You know, all he did was reverse engineer. Uh, He used Freud's theories to reverse engineer modern advertising and that sort of thing. And he's widely regarded. And that was 1919 public relations, might have been quite a bit later. So that's starting off hugely and, you know, he influences – Got women smoking. Influence, yeah. He influences media and the Nazis and everybody else. Um, but, but anyway, so so yeah. Back to this. Uh, yes, you. Yes, so yes, you're absolutely. Yes, you, no. You, yes, you're absolutely right about. Oh, yes, the transfer from from women to men. You know, that's. I think that 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 diet and calorie counting and and that sort of thing at some point. Um, well, but there's women, a lot going on there, isn't there? Yeah, and you know, because there is, and so just get to get back to your point about men are on the body market yeah. in a way that they weren't hitherto. I yes, yeah, and you see, you know, I just turned on the news the other day, and there's this trap, and it's like, oh, that's nice. You did a twink on television? No, not a twink. There are no twinks anymore. Yeah. My gay male friends tell me they're all they've all gone to the gym. Yeah, yeah. But exactly. now these you know straight blokes on the news yeah. look like or straight presenting blokes look like twinks. Yeah. Um. And uh, but can you see these tiny little tiny little Italian suits that are just yeah, yeah. Cool, that cut like a python to the yeah. arm. And these that's big a certain, that's a certain heads. media look. Yeah. It's peculiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just are you darling? It's a new way of being. You know, in the media, it's a sort of. I mean, of, I'm very vain, but have a sandwich. Yeah, but that's. I mean, but that's you know the old thing about the camera ads, ten pounds, that sort of thing, and that's why you know women on TV kept themselves thin, and when you met them, they were you know much thinner than you. Oh yes, you'd realize. Yes, if you've ever well, seen. Well, that's what men yeah. are doing to a certain type of male presenter is doing to now. I think one of the interesting things is the way in which, you know, it, it's obviously a form of control. It's a form of control in which the abstract and the concrete work together. So the person that counts calories or is able to count calories can see their body as an abstract system mm. uh, and they can apply that. And that starts to also take off. A lot of other things take off. For example, you know, the modern style of antidepressant, Prozac and uh SSRIs, people start talking about neurotransmitters and serotonin and adrenaline and that sort of thing. In everyday speech, you mean. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So they're applying back oh, yeah. I mean, people to will, their everyday, yeah. you know, well, that's, experience I mean, of the world. That's, that's, I mean, that is, that is interesting as well. It's sort of like um, 
So there's this idea that, you know, the great period of, you know, Western civilization, the Enlightenment. Um, so, you know, you can think about it as though there was a certain mysticism that we never quite understood, that we never quite stopped missing. Yeah. And so now we treat science as a mystical god. Like I'm not saying that in that way that they would say about the new atheists, they're just like Christians, they're faithful, whatever, yeah. you know. It's not, it's not about that. It's like you go from like there being a supernatural being that everyone yeah, agrees mm. to believe in or kind of believes in or whatever to these new organising principles of natural law and, you know, I don't understand science and, you know, guy but may you play too, but you, you no, 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 no. I, I mean, mean, I look at this, uh, I mean, you know, was that Asimov th thing that says, you know, it, it, technology appears to me as magic. I cannot tell you how this smartphone works. I, I cannot tell you. I mean, I just rely upon <laughs> these things. No, you, you can't tell me how a smartphone works and, and, and neither can I, but you can work like, say, a Word document. You can do control, paste, those sorts of things. Now, um, yeah, that, but that's very far from understanding. You know, when you so you say you no, use, I know, but so it, you use um, you know, uh, people system. talking about depression and what and whatnot in everyday life, and they say, oh, you know, you might it wouldn't be uncommon for people to say, oh, uh, you know, uh, synapse or or, or yeah, and yeah. everyone knows what serotonin yeah. is, and everyone knows yeah. what dopamine is, but you. Talk to a psychiatrist or, you know, read um, Psychiatry Times or something. Yeah. Very little is known about depression. I do take SNRIs. They work well for me. They don't work at all for some people. It could be a placebo effect. I don't know. And the fact is that psychiatry remains more of an art than a science and they don't know. Yeah, I know, but they, and but so, they projected but we, as if they did for decades, especially on the serotonin. Yeah, I know, but I mean there is, this, there is this thing. Like but, we, but we, we is, use no, no. the language of science as a magic word. Yeah, we, exactly, we are being exactly. mystical when we, we are not being scientific. We are just aware that there is this. No, it's a bit more, I think, I think something else is going on, I would say, because at the same time as people are using science, they're also going back to horoscopes or new age things or that sort of thing. And I, I would have said that. Not so much, not so much. No, but not so much. I've been interested to see if that would happen, but it has not been happening so much. There's, okay, yeah, yeah. There's not a great deal of a, a resurgence of interest in so-called new, yeah, new age But the, the search for scientific explanation of your own body, even if it's cod science, is what I'm saying is it's yes. not completely mystical. It's an urge towards uh, a, an abstract uh, understanding of how it works. But it's also a look for a first principle like science is God kind of thing as well. Well, yeah, but it's material. If we're materialists, we believe that there is a way the body works and we can understand it and that sort of thing. So one of the differences is is a class difference. You know, people who work in knowledge classes and that sort of thing, they have an understanding of abstract systems and they're at home in abstract systems and how abstract systems work. So they relentlessly talk about their bodies in this way. They relentlessly shape their bodies in this way. And people in other classes who aren't at home in these worlds don't. They don't have these feedback loops around their body. They don't think of the gym mm. in the same way by and large unless, you know, they're a subculture within that. And that's why you get this bodily division, it seems to me. You know, you see it, you know, where the people of the inner cities of of, of the West are all hard bodies and da-da-da-da-da. And as you move out economically and socially, you know, people are these unbounded bodies. These obese bodies and this and that. It becomes a a class division written mm. down in, in, in flesh and it instantiates uh, a difference in world understanding that, that you 
understand the world as a set of abstract systems to be operated and worked, and that includes your own body, or the world is more of a given thing and you work within it. And that seems to be at the root of much to come back Mm. to politics of, you know, Trump, Brexit, that sort of thing, the politics of managing abstract systems, you know, et cetera, et cetera, versus the politics of um, I'm sick of this bullshit, you know, here is the truth and I want it and, and that sort of thing. Uh, knackers and the Vag, our guest in the Cavern of Comrades is, of course, Guy Rundle. We are your nutrition and wellness celebrity spokespeople. We are looking at the ketogenic diet. Well, not really, but kind of. It was <laughs> a starting were. point yeah. for conversation. Speaking to a mate the other day and there seems to be a great deal of confluence between, I would say, people who might uh, purchase the very best-selling uh, Jordan Peterson and, oh, yes. and people who will go on the ketogenic diet, which I think mm. is interesting too. Now, well, I mean, Jordan th- th- Peterson is on the ketogenic diet. He's on, ex- he's on the all-beef diet. Well, he um, eats only beef and water. Well, that's not ketogenic, is it? Well, it, 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 no, actually, no, but you're right. You know, because many, it's, it's um, high protein. I, I don't of, know what it is. It's sort of, God, it's nuts. Uh, it's cattle herder. So yeah. there, um, a, a, a lot of the, um, the, the ubermensch of Silicon yeah. Valley are on the – Ketogenic yeah. diet. And, th- and this Silicon Valley guys are quite interesting because they seem to be doing this double act. Like you get the sort of Travis Kal- yeah. Kalinic kind of guy who was disgraced from, uh, you know, or maybe not, yeah. whatever. I don't know what happened to him. But he was widely regarded as very sexist and he yeah. was on the, you know, he was the CEO of Uber and now he's gone. Yeah. And so these sort of the, the these um, American oligarchs um, – you know, they seem to have this very strange balancing act. So they will do these kind of like mastery over self, yeah. hard-bodied kind of like, you know, you think, oh, you sniff, they're like two millimetres away from being like a a, a pickup artist or yeah. an MRA. Well, and then exactly, and then they'll yeah. say all this stuff about diversity and equality and all of that, all, you know, all the while like outsourcing um, the really crap work that people do to the Philippines, but you know that's by and the crucial bar. to understanding that division. It seems to me, and this is one of the crucial things, is a, is analysing societies in terms of content and form, and that the the you know it's diversity is a form of content. It's about you know um, saying you know we want uh, uh, we want all races, all genders, all all that sort of thing involved in this system, uh, but the form is left to unchanged so by and that is what that seems to be why you can have this simultaneous thing of going um oh yeah it's not about you know it's not about the white man ruling and that sort of thing in 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 this sort of framework you're talking about they're absolutely you know uh into that sort of diversity but then in form terms it is about not just total control over yourself but it's a it's a reversion to the idea of the extreme will and the control over nature. And, you know, yeah. and this is why someone like, you know, someone like Elon Musk is, is interesting because. I love that he's, I mean, not, not, I'm not taking pleasure in his sort of public dissolution. <laughs> but it is, I mean, like, I, I don't, I don't mean yeah. that I love it. I, I don't love yeah. the side of anybody crumbling. It's awful for them, even if they well, are I'm the SpaceX though. guy. Yeah. But. I mean, it's very interesting that this guy that you know, so many of my more kind of liberal colleagues yeah. just love. Like yeah, yeah. six months ago, Elon, oh, he's a good bloke, yeah, in- yeah. engineer, intelligent. Yeah, yeah. 
going to change the world. Well, that's it. And it's transcendentalist and transformative. And when you look to, to look at where was the last time you saw that, that pure spirit of let's grab the world by the throat and transform it was the Bolsheviks. So, you know, the Bolsheviks were, were uh, when you look at the evolution of the Bolshevik party from, from about 1905 or 1906, when they're just part of the. So you're saying somebody like Elon has that kind of spirit. Yeah. But you know, a, a Bolshevik. But I mean, much more limited for him. I mean, he wants to do certain things, but not. He's, all the things. No, but he. But when you've got someone who's not just interested in making a billion bucks, he's not even like a Bill Gates who wants to make a billion bucks and then solve, you know, cure malaria. You know, Elon Musk wants to explore space, you know, and that sort of thing. Yes, he, I mean, he is on record before as saying, um, I uh, don't want to be a billionaire myself, but, you know, it's necessary. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, that's extraordinary that one man could believe himself to be owed all of that power. I mean, you know, I mean, Bill Gates clearly does as well. But I, yeah, but I think Bill Bill is a is a pretty pallid example now. He's just the guy in a suit trying to cure malaria. Oh, you think? Elon. I mean, have you heard what he goes to say at, at Davos yeah, or that new Bloomberg little love fest they have every what I'm year saying in New York? Is, is someone he's who's, not pallid. He's evil. Well, but what I'm saying is, someone who's talking about exploring space and opening up yeah, the space. Yeah, that, that's all great, yeah. No, no, but it's a, it's a real thing that that it's it's a real transcendental idea of what can we do more, you know, what what is more, um, where are we going further, how are we transforming? Well, he's one of the few um, people in that realm that actually makes things out of stuff. Yeah, but it's and so that's the well. point. So, so he's, he's not just sort of selling us a promise. He's see, not fucking Uber who's saying, Okay, well, you know, um, you, the government and the military um, developed GPS. Yeah. We'll nick that, and we'll do something that you know any programmer worth their salt can. And then, and we'll spend a lot of money on lawyers and you know. Well, that's and suddenly, right. That's, Uber innovation, and yeah, that's exactly where fucking do anything. See, that's that much. the point. That's the exact. But, yeah, I mean, that's the point where capitalism is at. That capitalism is now a scare, is now imposing the limits of scarcity. That if you look back to the early 19th century, the aristocracy tried to impose on capitalism. So in the early 19th century, you get this struggle. The aristocrats, you know, they won't they won't reform the corn laws so people can buy bread mm. and they won't reform free trade laws. And then they finally get defeated when the railways come and they won't let people build railways across their land. So parliament just, you know, passes the Railways Act, which says they can compulsorily make them do so. And that's the crucial thing. And then you look now, here you look at, you know, capitalism, that was, capitalism was the dynamic thing. Now it's the thing which imposes rents, imposes scarcity, imposes limits. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, a, it's you know, all, all a matter of this sort of, these fictional assets as but well. Now, yeah, and that's and why. So, I mean, you know, so, that's so think about Elon. Apple. So think about Apple after, um, uh, you know, after Jobs died, right? Yeah. Like Jobs also a visionary. Like I personally, I don't use the stuff that people tell me it's very good or, you know, was very good. And the real innovation under the time of Tim Cook, whose real skill, whose real genius is for the shareholders and nobody else, he is like talking emojis. I think that's what he's done that yeah. in seven years. And so innovation and – But that's you, you what know I'm guy, going back, you know going guy, back to the qualitative the, – the, the Yeah, quali so no, 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 I want to I draw this out because what you've just said is very interesting and I think you might be interested to hear this. Yeah, yeah. Because this is a time of a fair bit of paralysis in innovation. Like, you know, we're constantly told that – large firms will innovate and, you know, under certain conditions and for many years. I mean, capitalism is a wonderful and productive system in many ways, 
But innovation has has halted in many fields. The true innovations in the very big companies, with the, the exception of our boy Elon, um, the, the, the true innovations are financial exactly. uh, yeah, uh, financial a, tricks, yeah. um, financial products, and so. You know, Capitalism has become a rent seeker. And with yes, and with with Trump, um, you know, I mean, and this is you know all the terrible things people say about Trump's him, but the they, king the, of rents. But yeah. the, you know, and you don't the tax legislation that he passed just was a gift to any company, yeah. any large company who wanted to do share buybacks. So mm. you know, you take your cash reserves or, or you get a loan or whatever, and you buy your own stock back. Yeah. And you deliver these, you know, wonderful dividends to the shareholders. Yeah. So just think about all that mess. And in the meantime, nothing's getting made and Apple gets talking emojis, um, yeah. which is very but different even when to Apple, the Jobs style. Yeah, but even when Jobs is doing I still think there's a qualitative difference between making a new phone and, and that sort of thing and Elon Musk going, I want to explore space or I want to create a hyperloop well, yeah. and it, or I want yeah. to create a completely electric car. And again, car. with the smartphone, like, um, you know, 80% of the technology was already around, uh, all of it actually developed by governments. Al- and yeah. also what's really interesting is like when when you look at a movie from the 70s, you go, everything looks archaic except one scene, okay? What's the one scene that doesn't look archaic in a movie from the 70s is when they get on a plane because you get on a plane and it looks exactly like, you know. Isn't that, that strikes me often. It's like. Because think, the, the 747 we? was introduced in 1970 and then we had the Concorde for a while, but we have never advanced qualitatively beyond the seven. No, do, do you know this guy, um, David Graeber? Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's kind of good fun, yeah. right? And his book, uh, it, you might like, it's called Debt: The First Five Thousand yeah. Years. It's a really interesting book, and you know, it's it's written as a version of um, the economist Michael Hudson's um, thinking, which is a lot of it is around you know debt, financialization. Uh, this shit um, that we've been talking about. And David Graeber, who was an anthropologist really, so no business whatsoever talking about money, but he does talk about it well. Um, He talks about this anxiety that we experience because the future is not here yet and we were expecting it. So so he has this idea. I mean, you go back to the big thinking in the West of the 1950s about what the future would look like. Yeah. You, and you see this reflected in the architecture and you have all this googie yeah. kind of spaceship yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah. We even had Jetsons, these, yeah. Yeah, you know, and in Geelong recently they just, uh, this is uh, a town just outside of Melbourne in Australia, they just, you know, recently knocked down one of the last kind of like Gen Age um, fuel stops, which was unfortunate. Oh, and so, so we, we yeah, oh, uh, yeah, so, but, you know, we, we, we had that here too yeah. in Australia in the 1950s. It was like, look to the future. And yeah. you can see it in the Soviet stuff as well. Like yeah, they, were, yeah. they also had their own form of futurism. Yeah, absolutely. And, and now for me, and do you go to the movies much? Oh, less than I used to, yeah. Well, so I usually I will go if I want to go and see one of the big yeah. pre- pretty things, right, one of the big space things. Yeah. The really great visual thing that I've seen at the movies in the last 12 months was Blade Runner 2049, yeah. which was just so good. And it's a vi- vision of the future that is perfect for the present. Because it it's really they're not imagining much that's different yeah. at all. Stag- total stagnation. That's interesting, isn't it? Because Blade Runner, the original one, was the first movie I remember seeing that was a future dystopia. So we'd had Star Wars and all that, and before that we'd had classic mm-hmm. sci-fi. And then you went to Blade Runner. I remember going to the East End cinemas in Burke Street 
you know, and they were those multiplexes because they had three cinemas. My God, I spent the 80s watching Blade Runner for the yeah. same reason. It's like, yeah, yeah man, yeah. yeah. You know, but that those first scenes where, you know, you just got the rain belting down on this crowded street of everybody selling, you know, these weird foods and this. Uh, and there's the big billboard for yeah, contraception. The, yeah, and, yeah, and there's, uh, there's this movie talking billboard. Sex workers in, in uh, you know, having to wear raincoats, but the, the raincoats have to be clear yeah, plastic. Yeah, and, and the great thing about the city is that it's exactly what, it's a mix of old and new buildings, yeah. you know, and, and ramshack, you know, you know, tubes stuffed into old buildings, connected to new buildings. And the moment of that was, you know, this was 83, so I just finished high school. The moment of that was exact realisation of, Oh yeah, of course it's going to be like that. Yeah. Of course, yeah. the future will collapse. And that that idea of you know yeah, it's, these it's going to be you know, imbricated as, buildings, yeah. you know, the old buildings, the new buildings together, is just what the future is. And I haven't seen twenty forty nine yet, but the idea that it's that's really interesting. The idea is total stagnation and nothing moved forward. I find really interesting. And what it looks like is somebody with a very small imagination of the future. Yeah, has invented this world, and the, the, you know, I mean, it's a very um, the strongest thing about the film. Yeah is visually and 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 it was it's amazing you yeah. know it's i mean fortunately it eats up any screen time that yeah. that gosling chooses to inhabit which is good because i'm not a big fan of his acting <laughs> well see the, the interesting thing is that that you know um they managed to sell the idea that com- revolutions in communications technology and then consumer revolutions in consumer technology amounted to advances you know and when you go from you know, when you look at air travel, when you go from the Comet Stratoliner or whatever it was in the 50s where it took you four and a half days to get around the world to the 747 and you do that in a dozen years, yeah. you know, that's progress. You know, because you know, I've written, I've done a book called A Revolution in the Making on 3D printing. And, you have. And all these sorts of I things. I have it here. Yeah, and when you look at it, you know, the things, the things we could do once we mobilise real capital to... Uh, to start, you know, but and the, by mobilising real capital, I mean using the state to mobilise real capital, you know, forced public investment to actually get stuff done. You know, it's extraordinary what could be done in material yeah. terms. And, and this is not to say, I mean, it was absolutely true for, for some time and is true still in some parts of the world that capitalism can be very productive. Productive at the cost of a lot of lives often. But so let's just say... Historically, yes, it has periods of extraordinary innovation and productivity. At the moment, in the West, this is absolutely not the case. There are not, you know, these extraordinary innovations for the same reason there are not all these job opportunities once big companies Mm. get tax breaks because once big companies get tax breaks, they do not spend them on, on, well, I mean, there's no reason that you would give away a profit, is there? But, you know, what they do is they use the money very commonly to financialize their own companies. Oh. So that means, do, you know, commonly like purchasing their own assets back. And all of this stuff happens really nice for the shareholders and corporate governance, but nothing gets made and there are no jobs and, and we get nothing new. And mm. they, 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 I and if you've ever had the feeling, you know, I mean, and, you know, people like my beauty therapist, Debbie, she jokes about this. She's like, where's my cleaning robot? I'm so yeah. sick of doing all my cleaning. I mean, you know, good question, Debbie. Where is your cleaning robot? They they spend it at the bank with all their financialization, I reckon. Well, that's right. Or, you know, where's, you know, when you think of healthcare, you know, we it's amazing what they can get us to accept 
as just the tragedy of life of the style of life. Think of uh, the ECG machine, for example. You know, you have an ECG machine now in every doctor's office, mm. you know, just a, a, a small and basic one. And that will, you know, so you go in and that will alert the doctor that, you know, you maybe should be referred on immediately. And that's obviously saved many hundreds of lives. Yeah. The idea that you could just keel over of a heart attack in the street has come to be less, you know, so we, we have a, and that's the thing. Now let's ask why shouldn't we have an MRI machine in every doctor's clinic, a mini MRI? Why haven't we developed a mini MRI? Why haven't we invested the money you know, into these sorts of things that would transform our lives in these categorical fashions. And and those those are what we could do. Because of the, you know, the putrefaction yeah. of a rotten system yeah. that has not been managed at all in many years. It's just like, oh, well, you know, let the capitalists do what they want because the market will decide and everything's even. And you yeah. cannot argue, you know, even if you are like a nice, compassionate capitalist, you know, capitalism with a human face, this is what you want. Mm. You cannot argue that capitalism can produce equilibrium. It runs in cycles. At the moment, it's run into this cycle where the financial markets are the true markets. It's not people making shit. It's people making shit for the use of people who once made shit and now pretend to make shit and only make a bit of shit like Apple or whatever. And it's just not producing much Mm. of anything. And so no wonder all these chaps are saying, Oh well, I think we should give you all universal basic income. Well, I think, so. and that's right. The, the because we're one, not giving you any jobs, by the way. Well, see, one of the interesting things is that that one of the reasons for all this financialization and the burn, you know, translating profits up to the next level of you know the financial and the asset, the held asset, and that sort of thing, and and then you know creating housing bubbles and that sort of thing. Is that any- so? You you agree that the that that it really it is the fi- the finance sector that has created Australia's housing bubble? Oh well, I think it's it's the absence of any other way to invest the money that's flowing in from the mining boom. You know, so it it flows. Well, I mean, you know, it was based on the commodities boom, but now it's you know most GDP is attributable just to the finance sector. Yeah, and- I, look, there's various. I, I'm not a specialist on this. I don't know, but the the point I'm trying to make, the, the core, crucial point, is that. If you, the more you start to plug that money into actual production, the more you would get another crisis of capitalism, which is the falling rate of profit, because you start to produce things at at, at successively lower rates of investment, uh, and then you get, you know, it becomes because of automation. Are you talking? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're Be- talking the tendency of the rate of profit. Yeah, to fall yeah, here. yeah. Because you, you know, you cannot see. We can get uh, we can get guy to show his Marxist roots here well, on knackers and the Marxian economy. Economics in that sense is set within a larger process, but yeah, that is that's part of what's happening in the system, and that's why that has to be held off at all costs. And that's why someone like Musk is a transitional figure, you know, capitalist and post-capitalist at the same time, because a lot of the stuff he's doing or trying to do or saying he should do, not out of any you know humanitarian bent, it's because he's a uh, you know this figure who wants to control the whole of the natural world, including space is the sort of technological revolution that then makes uh, capital accumulation almost impossible, Uh, sort of starts to thin it out to the point where the only way that capital accumulation 
and profit can be kept going is by these various methods, financialization, waste, rent, uh, rent, rent seeking on us. Yeah, rent seeking, scarcity, all this, everything. You know, I mean, you don't, back. you know, like so, a little example, you don't buy software anymore, you lease it, you can't. Yeah. There was something a week or so ago about, you know, somebody purchasing something from the iTunes store, perhaps it was a video movie. Uh-huh. And then they found that it was deleted and they said to Apple, well, you know, I purchased the license for this. And they were like, oh, I'm sorry, it's no longer in our library. But yeah. I purchased the license for this. Oh, I'm sorry, can we offer you a free rental? No, I want my movie. Uh, well, you know, it's not yours to have. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, increasingly, and I think we'll see this, you know, happening more and more in our own lives that we don't, you know, the concept of private property will certainly fall away for most of us. Um, it'll just be somebody else's um Hmm. private property we will just borrow things won't we well i i possibly i hadn't thought about that so much but it's interesting yeah i mean that that is a way of of increasing the rent isn't it it's just you never actually buy anything you just have to keep buying it well you know know, increasingly we we're not yeah you know do you run word uh no you use google docs or something no i use various things but yeah yeah i mean i have to run word and i just you know every year 150 bucks yeah yeah. couldn't buy the adobe suite this year it's like a thousand dollars a year yeah exactly for ones and zeros i'm gonna find a crack no i'm joking don't do that no those poor silicon valley chaps you make sure you pay every cent here on Knackers in the Vag. i can tell that guy is getting fidgety um and irritated and he probably has all the ladies of the village to pleasure in minutes from now. But, you know, I feel like I must torch you just just, um, a little longer. And I thank you, of course, for your conversation and time. I do appreciate it. A blast. Oh, you say that now. (laughs) No, it's great. You you say that. You you say that now. Um, All right. So, you know, this is the part of the podcast that no one gets to listen to, I think. You know, I th- I've got like an average. Excuse me. For, well, oh, right, because I've got an average like yeah, people listen for an average time of yeah. forty-five minutes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we've gone into injury time. I don't know if that's a typical time, but you know, so yeah. so let's talk before you go yeah. just about me too, feminism, oh, feminism generally, because you know. I'm uh, I'm permitting you to mansplain, which is actually a gentleman wrote, wrote to a newspaper I write for um, the other day and said that I had done some I had demonstrated that even a woman could mansplain. Hey, <laughs> the absolute fantastic! Uh, uh, you know, I, there I, I a I gentleman could, wrote to say yes. That. I clearly uh, don't uh, understand the mansplaining I had done was my failure to call the comedy program Nanette. The greatest uh, moment of entertainment uh, that uplifted yeah. us all. Yeah. Um, I thought it was all right. Nice piece of theatre. Yeah. Uh, she's very adorable in many ways. Didn't deserve the, the ovation that it continues accolades. to yeah. get. Um, and then you know you you might have seen the recent Emmys and Hannah Gadsby, uh, who is now a hero throughout the world. Um, Save the Emmys. And I watched it. I thought, oh, that's nice. You know, Australian comic doing well. I didn't see what was funny about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It was, you, you know, um, men, uh, uh, not all men, I'm here alone. I actually am at a point where I no longer get it. And I see yeah. this stuff. And I know, you know, it's only like a particular group of people and they usually work in the media who are 
having this big laugh about something I don't understand, like male tears and, you know, what is this shit, man? What is this? I have no idea. Male tears? Tell me. Oh, you've not heard this? It's no, sort no, of no. like male tears. It's like, oh, cry your male tears. Or here, oh, I see. Oh, here's a cup of... for your male tears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's like, okay, so, you know, it's like absolutely am I up for the uh, aim of understanding, diagnosing the thing we call um, sexism and, um, you know, and uh, uh, making it go away? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, do I believe that all people should have freedom? Yes, absolutely. Is sexual abuse uh, a, a, a concern for women? Yes, of course it fucking is. All of that, yes. But so this is the great moment of, and you know my friend uh, Shakira Hussein. Mm-hmm. I remember speaking with Shakira uh, shortly after the misogyny speech that Julia Gillard gave, mm-hmm. and she said, we were having a telephone conversation. She said, so this is feminism's big moment, is it? The thing that I've been waiting for all my life. <laughs> and I said, yes. Uh, also, you know, all of those, um, you know, meetings that I went to in my teens and well beyond. And, yeah, yeah. You know, all of this sort of worrying about, you know, whether my conception of gender was okay and how did we change things. And this is it. It's Hannah Gasby on the fucking Emmys. Yeah just saying that men are dreadful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's very interesting. Um, Which, I mean, I don't object to that as much as people say, like, you know, a black person says to me, oh, you're all devils. You know, fine, okay? Like, I can accept why you might think that and I can accept why some women might consider all men devils, right? And that's okay. What upsets me really is the implied uh, statement there, which is that all women are fantastic. Yeah. And and all you need to be is a woman. And, you know, if you've had a life of like just like gender has just been an annoyance to me. It's like mm. yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, you know, you're good for a girl or we're getting you because you're a girl or whatever, whatever. I mean, there's, I mean, not terrible mm. things to live with, but still annoying. But it's like, you know, when you're a writer, you don't want to write your identity. Like you want mm. to, I want to be able to write as you do uh, or be understood at least as you are, which is. You know, it's it's a thinking machine yeah. attached to a keyboard that strives and always fails to be well, objective. it's a full human being attached to a keyboard. I yeah. think that's that's what you're saying. But, and you, you're, you, know, you, never, you, know, you know, and, and you, you get that. I mean, one of the interesting things about Me Too is, you know, the first thing is that it's starting to fray now because of things like, you know, women being accused of it by men. We've had the Asia Argento. Sort of thing, and, and uh, so, av- so, Dr. So uh, Professor Ronell, did you yes. ever read her stuff? At- oh yeah, I remember reading her, the yeah. phone book. Oh my god, it's it's pretty good, but it was wacky ultra Derridaeanism sort of. Yeah, she was one of those like a crazy deconstructionist. Yeah, yeah, I never, yeah. I heard the name when I was at uni, but I never read yeah. it. So, so you know, the, all these things are coming out, and they seem, you know, and a lot of them have that. That the, the characteristic of the, the of certain parts of the Me Too thing, uh, you know, which is saying this was, you know, certain strands of this is uh, examples of what someone's well, saying. This was never sexual assault. This was never. This is you know. This is just intimidation or or you know yeah, importuning. I mean, no, knock yourselves out. You know, if you can decide, you know exactly where consent lies. Good on you. Keep having that argument. You'll be having it for a, or, uh, eternity, which is in no way. But consent is often an apology too. Yeah. You know, but even it, you when know, the Me Too thing is, 
and it flips over. It's oh, look, I mean, you know, consent can be revoked um, yeah. after the after the act, apparently now. And I'm not making fun there. I'm just saying that that's well, it. Well, I think that was always possible. Uh, you though. know, I mean, it's like, um, you know, say I, for example, read, uh, you know, I won't say that I read it with a kind eye, but Lena Dunham's uh, memoir. Yeah. And the thing that she describes there as rape, I would not yeah, understand yeah. as rape and it would be like, um, and I'm terrible uh, sex. Uh, uh, yeah. It's just like, oh, yeah, we were drunk. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, that's it. yeah. And I have a vague memory, and oh, I'm a bit embarrassed about having sex with somebody with those sorts of politics. But she understands it as a wound, as a trauma. Yeah. And I certainly experienced trauma before that was gendered. But um, it's just, you know, so so that argument can go on and on. But getting back to what you were saying before about how gentlemen in particular, Think about their bodies, and you get these ketogenic blokes yeah, who, yeah. who may have read Jordan Peterson. And the first, the first instruction in his instructions for life is a physical one: yeah. stand up straight, yeah. with the shoulders back. You know this idea that people that, that safety becomes for people in the West um, like a primary concern. Yeah. And so I think that this stuff safety is personal. Safety is is this has become you know gone burst its bodily bounds to become everything. It's a total all-encompassing idea of the way to live a life. And, and it's something about impingement and it's something about, and that then maps on, it seems to me, to, to men and women. So, so that the or, idea or, or is. Or women and women. Or me, I'm like, I'm waiting for the first, you know, girl on girl me too. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm actually kind of wondering, you know, will it be me? Like, <laughs> no, seriously, like, is there somebody in the 90s that I, you know, yeah, didn't treat as gently as I ought to yeah. have? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, and I'm surprised there hasn't been a girl on girl, given, you know, given the way the entertainment industry works and that sort of thing. But, um, uh, yeah, and, and it, it sort of, I mean, what seems to happen for me is that the, as, the, as the test of what counts as consent and non-consent ramps up and up and up to impossible levels, it, it would seem to flip over into a pure Victorianism, doesn't it? Where women are petitioning men for the right to be unsullied or to be, you know, unhanded. Well, and uh, let, you know, a lot yeah, of no. a lot of gentlemen are doing this as well as yeah. the ladies. Yes, it feels Victorian in one sense. In another way, um, it feels kind of like ultra rational and very. You know, American, yeah. like very U.S. mid-century, yeah. where we need a name and a codification for. And, and if you come to this sort of stuff from a queer or a queer studies perspective, or you know, if you've been a homosexual, uh, you um uh, for you know a few minutes or or a long time or whatever, you, I guess I guess you have a particular sort of maybe sensitivity. If, particularly if you're of a certain yeah. age, to people saying, well, this and this and this. Because if you've lived through a period where, yeah. you know, you didn't have parity with ages of consent because your sex was dirtier yeah, or yeah. or you had been sent to us, which I was, I was sent to a psychologist by my mother for, yeah. for, for you know, being pervy. Yeah, as, yeah. And you like uh, codifying sexuality usually ends badly. And it, I, yeah. you know, Whatever you think of him and whatever you've heard of him being a sexist or whatever, like, you know, we might disagree about um, how the origin or the maintenance of gender. But, I mean, they're just to state, state it clearly, you 
are not sort of, yeah, you're not drawing a line in the sand and saying this is rape and that's not and everybody knows that and you're not not denying the many everyday experiences of, of, of trauma. No, um, of course not. And uh, you're not denying that this could be used as a tool of control and often is in workplaces. Um, so all of those things, yes, you know, I know what happened. You know, me too. Of course me too. All these stories, they're largely true. But, and that your pain is true, but the conversation that um, is attendant to this big expression of pain that you might think is going to change something but won't is is what nothing will happen if all you keep doing is telling stories. The conversation we have around it is, you know, this big conversation happening among so many people. Mm. You know, even like the hard left, right? Like yeah. even, you know, even people whose work I love and they're all talking about Avatar Ronell and, you know, and should Judith Butler and Madame Spivak have said that? And, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm interested too because yeah. I know those people by their work. but. If you really want to get down to the point where you are talking about what is good sex and what is bad sex? I think one of the interesting things is that Me Too and, and various things around it, and, you know, largely with the locus of of, of women being the Me Too, is in part um, a complaint about what I'd see as the irreducible inequality Um between men and women in in some ways, you know, now. Or if you're going to be a radical feminist about it, you you would say that, you know, but seriously, if you're going to take an Andrea Dworkin perspective, that that there is an element of, you know, well, this is what she, she, she urged people, I won't quote it because I can't remember, but she, she urged her readers to think about the violence inherent in, Heterosexual sex, sex acts. Yeah, but that's and um, so that you know you. But there's way different ways to look at it, you know. And I don't want to get into an argument with you about what I suspect is your burgeoning biological essentialism, right? But because it's a long conversation, guy. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's why we, you know, it's it, it, only songs. been talking for two hours. Two hours. Yeah, but I would see. Look, look, wherever the that that sort of inequality comes from it's let's say it's very, let's just say it exists can we yeah but let's also say it's deeper seated than than people than the, no, it's, the yeah. cultural measures it's not and what just we've had it's is, not just you live in a in a sexist society it is uh, there are systems. we've had half a yeah we've had half a century of women's lib and then uh, calling it second wave feminism uh, and then it being something else and there is this you know realization i think at some level that um uh, you know, there's certain things that that can't go on and should change, and that's the thing. But there is also the realization that um, the asymmetrical character of male-female relations has some irreducible elements to it. I would say, and I think a lot of what it's, is uh, I understand <laughs> what you're saying. Um, I, I, I don't. Um, if you're listening and you're thinking, "Oh, how dare he? How very dare he?" <laughs> Don't be. No, but I, I no, I want you. I just want to add uh, some gloss here because yeah. when people hear this after Lip gloss, but no, when when some if, when you hear, you hear this, you know, for the first time that you know somebody's saying that there are some irreducible differences between men and women. Now it is very largely agreed whether people have heard the name Judith Butler or not. Yeah, it is very largely agreed in the West by anyone who has ever thought about gender relations in what we might call a progressive way. Sex is just some stuff. Uh, biological sex is gender's alibi. 
blah, 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 yeah. the end of it, right? So that is one way to think about gender. Yeah. And then the totally biologically essentialist way is another way to think about well, it. No, and there's, then there's, there's other ways too. There okay, are so other ways. And the, the third, I'm not a biological essentialist. But no, I just I just want to make clear that you're that there's some thinking that goes behind you making this statement, right? Yeah. That's all I want to. Yeah. I wasn't disagreeing. I was just yeah saying to you who is listening to this crap that what you guy are, are saying has. Some yeah. thinking behind it. Yeah, Ooh, thank you. But Could we, be wrong thinking. Well, we're embodied. Probably well, is. We're embodied beings and, uh, you know, one of the things we've had in the 20th century has been that for, for about 300 years we had modern philosophy stemming from Descartes and Descartes' idea was to doubt everything uh, that couldn't be certain and the only thing I could be certain of was that I th- that thinking that I was thinking couldn't be certain, which in, my own. in turn led him to, you know, belief in God. Yeah, and also led him to dualism, the the dualism of the body and the soul. Now we largely wiped that out. You know, the the dualism was obviously a problem, and was in part a product of you know the beginnings of the circulation of capitalism and the separation of exchange value and use value. Um, as you get into the twentieth century, you know, with or oh, the 19th century, the 20th century, with Schopenhauer and, and Wittgenstein and, and Marx to a degree, you start to break down that, that dualism and to say, you know, there is, no, there is no mind in the body operating the body like a machine. We are our bodies in certain ways. Yes. And, uh, you know, Sartre makes the point that to not to, dualism is a form of bad faith. You know, it's thinking that I am this thing separate to to my embodiment in history, mm. the way I am in history and that sort of thing. And there still are people working to the present on these sorts of ideas. Yeah, hang on. Let me just finish this. So so one of the problems with abstracting gender from from physically embodied sex, totally as as seems to be done, is that it it just reinscribes dualism. It reinscribes a dualism um that uh uh that can be a form of bad faith and is not yeah. really an encounter with one's own embodiedness and this seems to be one of the reasons why we go from a focus on sexuality in the from the 60s and 70s like what you do and and that sort of thing you know identities are piled on that and we deconstruct those that sort of thing to gender you know mm-hmm. and that's what you are and um and it's quite possible to say that this is, you know, of of course there is a separation between sex and gender and that sort of thing, but to to float them free of each other completely, to not look at embodiment uh, and givenness and those sorts of things as as something you have to be in relationship to uh, in a dynamic yeah. way and in an asymmetrical way um, is a is a huge historical step backwards. But it's quite interesting that for me. Given what you've just said, that I was going on a bit of a run a few weeks ago, and it, and it struck me that part of me too, and part of this very you know intense and public discussion about mm. what people have done to other people and what people have mm. had done to them. Mm. I mean, I I genuinely, I mean, I've written filthy books before, but you know, I spent a long time writing my filthy book, and you know, you just see people. Tell the New York Times about, and then he put his fingers there, and 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 yeah. you know, and these very what I would reckon would be quite re-traumatizing experiences yeah, of yeah. of you know recounting it and and being asked by a journalist to recount it in a 
particular way. Mm. And I just thought, what is this, you know, what is this stuff? This is, Me Too has been brewing for a few years and it's not been since my kind of like youth as a radical feminist that I've heard so much talk about rape, but I was living in a house with women who worked at rape crisis centres mm. and but now it's it's every day, you know, yeah. and now it's almost as much as back in the day. And it was like, so there's a couple of things going on here. One of them is, you know, this conversation is dominated by women who are very, you know, um, w- women with some profile. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, you know, to quote a dreadful thing that Hunter S. Thompson said, um, nothing catches an editor's eye like a good rape. Yeah. And, I mean, it is still true. It was true in the 1950s. Mm. It's true today. People enjoy reading about sexual violence and they always have. This is very interesting actually because when you look at newspaper reports right up to the 70s of sex crimes and that sort of thing in newspapers, they are shockingly explicit. They are really going to And they're becoming explicit again. Exactly. And they stopped doing that in the 70s for two reasons. They stopped doing it because of women's lib, because everybody knew. Oh, yes. No, I mean, I was that age and we were like, you do not do that and you do not say that and you do not, you know. Everybody knew they were You do not do that and you know most women are attacked by men that they know and you must stop doing, you know, the beautiful young white woman. for 30 years we had And then we get Jill Maher. And, I mean, tragic, awful, horrible thing that happened, yeah. grotesque, like, you know, pure devil stuff. Yeah. But, and that changes everything. Well, yeah, I mean, but other – yeah, yeah, it's one of the it, – it's the signal moment for, for Australia or Melbourne maybe. But but you're right, yeah, it's um, – suddenly it became that to write about this stuff in great detail was for a complete was for a completely different purpose than you wrote about it in Truth in the 40s. But it looks the same. Mm. It's the same yeah. level of – you know, salacious, and it's always been this split. You know, who reads Patricia Cornwall books? You know, who da 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 da? We have this. Uh, who watches? You know, um, uh, special victims unit. Yeah, Apparently, yeah. everybody. Yeah, but you know, uh, you know, it's like seventy percent of Patricia Cornwall's readers are women, and there's a a catharsis thing going on in a lot of that. You know, you read. Oh look, I mean, you know, you know like, I think sort of uh, you, a lot of complex. You don't stuff, need to but, say it, but I, I, you know, I, I, I shall. Um, the first time I was ever aroused by a piece of text was that of all people, Andrea Dworkin. Yeah, yeah. In her book Pornography. Right. Where she talks about Georges Bataille. Yeah, yeah. And she's giving this outraged account of yeah. what is done to the woman. I'm like, ooh. Yeah. You know, and so you can't control, <laughs> you know, the, that you might yeah. feel arousal for. Well, in this case, I think with Bataille, like, Somebody shoving eggs up somebody's yeah, bum while they're yeah, on a yeah. bicycle or something. I mean, God knows why I found it erotic, but I did. And yeah. not my f- people I'm, are like that. And if you, I had you, a cycling phase too. You so. can't, <laughs> you can't tell me that people aren't watching The Handmaid's Tale and not absolutely getting off on oh, the abso- violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's a, so it's a weird. stick movie. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on with all of that stuff, and um, and so. Uh, what was I going to say there? I forgot, I've lost my thread. Um, oh, sorry. Well, I've, <laughs> kept time, to, I've, I've kept you. I've, I've kept you. I've kept you. I'm so sorry. I've kept you too long. No, 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 um, no, no, no. But we'll, yeah, let's 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 wrap that. I've, I've, oh no! I tell you what. I think I'm. I, you know what I'm. What I'm really interested in in, in the the boundaries of the Me Too stuff and that sort of thing. It, it's clear. One of the reasons the interesting things about The Handmaid's Tale and why it it becomes so big is 
is the discourse of Puritanism, capital P Puritanism, that is central to American cultural self-understanding, the virtuous self and the virtuous heart, but has now been exported to cultures like ours that aren't particularly Puritan. Uh, you know, you can see the French resisted that when these hundred women signed a letter saying, you know, vive la difference and there's got to be interplay and that sort of thing. And to me, this is the really interesting thing, you know, that the, the, the rules are now reset in terms of, you know, street life, flirting, um, uh, encounters between men and women, sexual moves and that sort of thing. That the, the stuff we can agree is is out of bounds is 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 really pretty you know universally agreeable you know in terms of sexual harassment at work and and shakedowns and all that sort of stuff and and that sort of thing. But what we can't yet agree on is is you know bodily boundaries, places where people can interact in that way, um, where things are off limits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you know yeah. th that corresponds in part to the rise of dating sites and Tinder and and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, I'm interested in 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 how that will shake out. It will be intriguing to watch. I should say that there were, you know, a, a lovely group of ladies um, who used the Me Too hashtag, didn't give their names and didn't tell their personal stories of trauma, but gave it to McDonald's and, um, you know, all joined the union and walked out during the lunch rush and said, no, we will not be subject uh, to your advances. We will not smile when, you know, men say disgusting things to us. And by the way, we'd like $15 an hour. Some of the the ladies and their male allies on strike uh, earn as little as $2.13 an hour. Jesus. Yeah. It's yeah, an absolute not and, and then, of course, they need to flirt in order to get the bucks they need to live. Yeah. It's um, anyway. It will be. We'll we'll talk about it again because I am Absolutely. really fascinated to see what plays out. Yep. It's That's um, good. yeah. And I do think that you know I, I'm not saying that it has no basis in the real, but I think part of me too, and part of this sort of like bodily exploration is a desire people have to actually explore their flesh again. You know, mm. to feel grounded. Maybe I don't know. Well, that, that might be right, but uh, let's leave that for next time yes. and wrap it. Goodbye. This was Knackers. This was The Vag. Didn't hear much from the bear. Uh, email address, as always, helen at badhostess.com. Uh, uh, I need to feed and water the guests. Not too much money. Just throw me a dollar or something on the Patreon. What's it all? No, I don't care. Goodbye. Goodbye.